The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Micah 3, verses 5 through 8. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I'm filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. So, confession to make, uh, when I started getting into this series, I didn't realize how confrontational the prophet Micah was, and I wondered if maybe uh, people would peace out uh, for this series after the first couple of messages, or at least register how upset they are at how confrontational this stuff is. Um, But today, this is the third message in this series. The 830 service was jam-packed. We're receiving all kinds of encouragement and gratitude for this hit-us-between-the-eyes messaging from this ancient prophet. And the only explanation I can come up with is that uh, hearts that are soft to hard truth are hearts that are being shaped by God himself. This is another hard-hitting passage, Micah chapter 3, and the sky is going to open up. I promised you this last week. The sky is going to open up soon. Charles McGowan, uh, my faithful predecessor, longest tenured senior pastor uh, of Christ Presbyterian Church, faithfully serving here 14 years, and then some since that time, Uh, reminded us about where Micah is going, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, and Micah is taking us there. Uh, But I want to start with an anecdote from the Chicago evangelist Dwight L. Moody. Uh, He was criticized by a lot of people for being too confrontational, especially in the way that he did evangelism, especially in the way that he talked to people who uh, did not identify as followers of Jesus, about following Jesus, uh, people thought he was too confrontational, and he said to his critics, uh, most of whom are Christian, you probably have a fair point, but I like my way of doing evangelism better than I like your way of not doing it. So the prophet Micah uh, is not unlike that. He's, He's an acquired taste, had a lot of critics, Uh, He was uh, a bit of an in-your-face kind of preacher and was known for having no filter and using words like death, doom, destruction, judgment, uh, evil, etc. And his focus here, his target audience, is lying preachers, preachers who um, 
who contradict the very words of God because they value the opinion and support of their clients, and I'm saying the word client instead of congregation because that's what they are, more than they valued the affirmation of God himself. They would be paid money. They would charge and be paid money by wealthy, powerful people who did not like certain things about God's Word that contradicted things that they wanted to do, which included taking advantage of the weak, which included uh, uh, stealing property, dignity, and even life from weaker citizens in the land. You know, I read a, a quote earlier this morning that, that said, we reject the Bible not because it contradicts itself, but because it contradicts us. And there were powerful people who were upset that the Bible contradicted them, and so they hired out charlatan preachers to tell lies so that they could feel affirmed. And and the metaphor that's used here earlier in the chapter is cannibalism. In verse 3, Micah talks about how these powerful people use their position and their power to, to steal property, dignity, and life from weaker citizens and so what we have here in these, these uh, preachers, these false preachers that he's confronting, is spiritual wolves who are coming to the aid of political wolves as they ransack the sheep. This has happened throughout history. Uh, there's a German pastor named Hermann Gruner uh, who said this, It is because of Adolf Hitler that Christ, God the Helper and Redeemer, has become effective among us. Hitler is the way of the Spirit and the will of God for the German people. How about that? Another pastor of the same era in Germany said this, Christ has come to us through Adolf Hitler. How about that? I suppose almost everyone has a price. Jesus said this, If anyone causes these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. And so, for those of us who are prone to flirt with lies, which is all of us, because there are certain aspects of God's truth, of God's Word, that we are prone to want to close our ears to, and we want to be told something different. This is really for all of us. There are two smelling salts for that part of us that wants to close our ears and to close our hearts to things that God says. And those two smelling salts are, number one, God goes silent. And number two, God keeps speaking. So God goes silent. Verses 6 and 7, Micah says this, Therefore it shall be night to you, it shall be darkness, without vision and darkness to you, without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. This is a description of the worst kind of starvation that can happen to a human being. It's what the prophet Amos would call a famine 
for hearing the word of the Lord. Because in response to our wanting to silence God, God often will give us what we want and go silent and stop speaking to us. Amos chapter 8 writes this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander, they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. And so this is a warning. When we close our ears to the voice of God, God will close his mouth to us. And so for any inclination that we might have to feed our own or somebody else's appetite for sin and falsehood, or to starve our own or somebody else's appetite for godliness and truth, God leaves the building. You know, there's this word, Ichabod. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Hebrew word. You know, I probably just butchered the, the pronunciation. Ichavod is probably a little bit closer to, to, to how it sounds. You, you know, you may you know, know the, the whole legend of the headless horse, horseman, Ichabod, crane. Well, ichavod means the disappearance of the glory of God. When God leaves places of worship, when he departs from sanctuaries, and and, and when he initiates a famine for hearing the word of the Lord because the people will not eat the word of God. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Micah is, is, is preaching in, in an in-your-face fashion to those who presume editorial rights over the words of God, who stand over the Word of God as if they had jurisdiction over him as opposed to him having jurisdiction over them. They've got it backwards. So there's another German pastor, also a theologian, named Adolf Schlatter, and he was asked publicly, do you stand on the Word of God? And his answer was no. No, I do not. I stand under the Word of God because it is a dreadful thing to presume to stand on that which cannot be revised, that which cannot be edited, that which is not going away, even if we try to make it go away. We only reject the Bible not because it contradicts itself, but because it contradicts us. And Schlatter recognized that potential in himself. And so when you want to silence God, sometimes God will eventually give you what you ask for. But the tragedy here is that they don't see the tragedy in that. You know, again, Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so let's just say that life is a boat, and and the goal of that boat, the, the mission of that boat is to get you from the east or west coast shore to 
to, you know, a country and a city on the other side of the water that represents your destination, that represents your wholeness, your fullness, life as it was always meant to be, your people, your community, you know, world without end, right? So, so the purpose of that boat is to get you from one point to that point. If that boat is off just one degree, you will not get home. If it's off just one degree, you're more likely to hit an iceberg and perish than you are to get home. And that's what the Scriptures insist about themselves. If you are one degree off, you will never get home. You know, James 2.10, whoever keeps the entire law of God, which is nobody except for Jesus… Whoever keeps the entire law of God but, but, but breaks it at just one point, it's as if they've broken all of it. You know, John chapter 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Now, if anybody has ever um, been in a relationship that is undergirded by love, you know that love is a gutsy, costly thing even more than it is an emotional thing. You know, emotions and warmth are a byproduct of what actual love is. If you look at the definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13, it says nothing about how you feel. But it says everything about what you promise to be and what God has been for you already through Jesus Christ as your resource to become that yourself. Love is costly, but what Micah is saying is, that, oh, it costs you a lot more. It's going to be a lot more expensive for you not to love him and for you not to obey him than it is for you to love and obey him, even though it will cost you everything to do so. You must take up your cross, deny yourself daily, follow him. But the more costly thing is not to do that. You're headed for an iceberg. So C.S. Lewis put it this way. He's basically saying God is not safe. You know, he says in the Narnia Chronicles, he's not safe, but he's good. But he's not safe. You know, in his book, A Grief Observed, which he wrote to process, it's sort of a diary to process the death of his his wife, the untimely death of his wife, Joy, from cancer. And he says this, there is no safe investment. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Your heart will be wrung and possibly be broken the only place outside of heaven where, can, where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. There are two places where love will not break your heart. Heaven, where love is perfect and everywhere all the time, and hell, where love doesn't exist. And now here in the in-between in, in in time, to be fully human, you've, you've, you've got to live with the fact that your heart is going to be broken. It's part of the picture. God goes silent. But the other, the other smelling salt that Micah puts under our noses is, is that God keeps speaking for those who are able to hear. And those who are able to hear are those who drop all conditions that we presume to place on him, or at the very least, we want to drop all conditions. You know, you, that, that place in the gospel where this, this guy, the, the, this, this very honest guy comes to Jesus and says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. 
You know, even that is an expression of, of, of strong faith because a strong faith has nothing to do with the strength of the faith itself. It just has to do with the existence of any amount of faith, even a small, tiny little mustard seed, if the object of faith is the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, who has all power and authority in heaven and on earth. But if we drop all conditions, or at least want to drop all conditions that we would place on God, then, then, then we will be able to hear and God will still want to speak to us. You know, Job and his wife had an identical experience almost of, of, of losing all ten of their children, losing their economic prosperity, losing their, their business and livelihood, losing their property, Job losing his health, losing any peace they might have had in their marriage because of a devastating terrorist attack that, that just decimated everything that their life had been built upon. And, and Job's wife, and it's understandable, I think to most of us it should be understandable, you know, those of us who are thinking clearly will not be hard on Job's wife because we could easily see ourselves falling in the same pit that she does when she says, curse God and die. What's the point of worship? What's the point of, of humbling ourselves and, and putting ourselves in, you know, before God and surrendering to Him? If, if it ends up like this, what's the point? It's understandable. I get cut off in traffic and have those feelings sometimes. Okay, but Job, in the same moment, it says that he bowed down and worshiped, and he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We'll sing those words at the end of this service, by the way. Though he slay me, Job would say later, yet I will still trust in him. But, but between these bold, otherworldly statements of faith, we also had Job kind of going the way of Job's wife, you know, shaking his fist at God, getting in arguments and saying, you mock the despair of the innocent. And so even Job, the, the righteous man, has these moments where he's like, I believe, help my unbelief. That's, what Chris, that's how Christianity plays out. It's messy, not linear like we talked about last week. Three steps forward, two steps back, and so on. And so John chapter 6, Jesus is teaching some hard truths publicly. And it says that in response to Jesus teaching those hard truths, many of his disciples left him and stopped following him. And he looks at his, his core 12 disciples and he says, well, what about you? Are you going to leave too? Is my teaching too hard for you? To, to continue with and, and to bear? And Peter responds to Jesus, and, base, and, and he says, I mean, no, where else can we go? You are the one who has the words of eternal life. Where else would we go, Lord, even if we wanted to go somewhere else? Where would we land? We, we would hit an iceberg if we went anywhere else, if we angled ourselves even slightly in another direction, except the direction that, that leads straight to you, we will perish. Where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the boat that will get us to that holy city on the other side of Jordan or on the other side of the Red Sea or on the other side of this fallen, broken existence that we live in right now. But along the way, this is just proof positive that, that, that Jesus's and God's words of life can sometimes feel like death to us. 
You know, verse 8, Micah says this, as for me, you know, contrasting himself with these false preachers, as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. His power is in this confrontational message. Like, I like my way of doing evangelism better than than I like your way of not doing it. A convicting message is a powerful message for those whose hearts are in a position to receive it. And even that is God's work. So there's, uh, there's this uh, psychiatrist named Carl Menninger. He's very well known. I'm not sure that he was a Christian. Uh, but he wrote this essay once from a psychological perspective called Whatever Became of Sin. And he says this in that essay, I call for a revival of a conscious sense of guilt and repentance. In short, a revival of sin. And what should be the good of that? Why not a no-fault theology, no one to blame? The assumption that there is sin in something implies both a possibility for and an obligation to an intervention. We want to help ourselves and others, and hence sin is the only hopeful view. When evil appears around us and no one is responsible, no one guilty, no moral questions are asked, then there is, in short, nothing to do. So we sink to despairing hopelessness. Therefore, the consequence of my proposal would not be more depression, but less. What he is saying is, the more you look at your own sin, the less depressed you will be. The more you look square into your own transgression, and a lot of us, you know, we build a life on finding fault in somebody else. You know, I'm, you know, I'm culprit number one in that. Build a life of pointing the finger at somebody else's contribution to the problems with the world, completely reluctant to look in the mirror, completely reluctant to ask anyone around us to scrutinize us. But manager is saying, you do that to your own detriment. You do that and you create your own world of depression if you're unwilling to look at the worst in you, not generally, but specifically. You know, Jesus put it this way, you who are removing specks from the eyes of others, find the plank in your own eye first or ask somebody else to help you find the plank in your own eye. Remove that, then you can see clearly to gently and kindly remove the specks from somebody else's eyes. One of the things that Menninger is saying here is too much self-esteem is actually a problem. It's actually a problem. It's a chief cause of personal and social ills, too much self-esteem. Because self-esteem is built on narcissism, where where you're staring at yourself and thinking about yourself and pep-talking yourself instead of looking at God, instead of looking at Jesus, instead of looking at the one who is the salve for your defective, contaminated soul. Right? You don't heal yourself. You look to a physician to heal you. You don't look at yourself to heal you. You look to a physician 
Jesus is the physician. You know, Micah talks here about this phrase. It's, you know, he's so dramatic. A heap of ruins. Jerusalem, he says in verse 12, shall become a heap of ruins. Hold that word heap. And the mountain of the house, hold that word mountain, is a wooded height. So the Old Testament prophets... Many of them have a short-term fulfillment of the things that they prophesy. Like, for instance, uh, when it was said that the son of David would reign on David's throne, the short-term fulfillment was Solomon. But there's also a long-term fulfillment. Theologians call it prophetic foreshortening. Okay, you don't need to remember that. But the long-term fulfillment was that, that Jesus would reign in perpetuity on David's throne. We get that in Isaiah 9. We read it every Advent season to remind ourselves that Jesus is on the throne of David forever. Here, the short-term and the long-term fulfillments are different. The short-term fulfillment here is Jerusalem's dread of national decline and exile, which is about to happen because of their transgression. But the long-term is this mountain called Golgotha, a skull-shaped hill in Jerusalem upon which Jesus would be crucified in what you could call a wooded height, Micah's words. For the whole world to see, and when when anyone looks to the wooded height on Golgotha's hill, they are saved, they are redeemed, they are adopted, they are brought into the family of God never to be kicked out, they are kept They are beloved. A heap of ruins is his ruin, ultimately, that leads to our redemption. The cross of Jesus Christ, the wooded height on this this mountain, is Christ's answer to our sin. His answer to our sin is not condemnation but grace. His answer to our shame is not rejection but tenderness. His answer to our repeat failures is not a last straw cancellation but never-ending embrace. His answer to our slowness to listen and to pay attention is not disgusted retreat but determined pursuit. His answer to the grossest things about us is not shouting us down and shutting us out but quieting us with his love. His answer to the very worst things about us is not to insist that we grovel, but to shower us with grace. That's the only thing that will get us out of the pit. When's the last time you shamed somebody and they changed permanently? When's the last time you graced and loved somebody and they changed permanently? It's not only true it works. Conversely, what is false is not only false, it fails. You know, one of the misconceptions about Micah is he's a shamer and a scolder. He's setting us up. You know, a a surgeon digs in the scalpel or an orthopedist, you know, snaps the the joint and, and it's jarring and it's painful and it's throbbing and it's infected to the point where you're so desperate that you will finally get the surgery. You will finally seek the cure. The principle applies 
spiritually as well. So back to this teaching in John chapter 6 where it says that Jesus gave them a hard teaching and most of the disciples walked away and stopped following him and the 12 were still with him and Peter's like, I don't know, man, like I kind of wish I could leave, but, but where else can I go? You have the words of eternal life, so I guess we'll stick with you. Write it out. His teaching was this. You can find redemption from your cannibalistic ways by eating my flesh and drinking my blood. Whoever feeds on my flesh, Jesus said, and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. There are two essential foods according to Jesus, and it's not bread, and it's not water, it's Scripture and His body and blood. Those are the two essential foods that will get you home and sustain you there. Jesus does not say of the bread and the cup, this resembles my body and this resembles my blood. He says this is my body and this is my blood. And I, I know there's a lot of mystery to that. But what it does teach us is that, and it's a chilling reminder, and also a liberating reminder. It's a chilling reminder because it reminds us that we are cannibals. That the, that the, that the, that the ruthless leader that Micah is confronting, the ruthless power-hungry people who steal property and dignity and life from others resides in us as well. And so he says, eat some flesh then. Drink some blood then. Because you are fleshly and you are bloodthirsty. I know what is in the heart of even the best human beings. Without my redemption, it would be terrifying. But the other thing it reminds us us of is that he was willing to be devoured. He was willing to be sliced up and to drip all over the ground and to be humiliated and consumed so that we would not be humiliated and consumed. There's a lot of irony in that. Micah is telling us, Jesus is telling us, the Lord's Supper tells us that there is a wolf lurking in the heart of every sheep. And that wolf is mortified every time you and I wolf down the flesh and the blood of the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. And so to the twelve who would betray him that very night, and also to us, the King of kings and Lord of lords and the good shepherd said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And then he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim his love until he comes. You proclaim his favor. You proclaim your own adoption. You proclaim your own belonging by grace. You proclaim your own everlasting security. You proclaim that you will never be cannibalized because he was. You proclaim that teeth will never sink into you because teeth sank in to him even as they do today. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, forgive us for any and every way that we close our ears and hearts to your voice. Terrify us, Lord, by the notion or possibility of you going silent on us. Because we do not live by bread alone, but by every word, every word that proceeds from your mouth. Meet us in this moment. Nourish us with bread and with the cup, with your body and your blood, and all of the wonderful truths and promises that they give to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.